This review may contain spoilers. Listen at your own peril. Perfect Blue by Satoshi Khan. What is reality? What is fantasy? What are dreams? These seem straightforward questions enough, don't they? Real is what you know you can see when you're awake, and fantasy is what you construct for things you want and things that you may desire, whether they're actual things or jobs or objects or people. And sometimes people can be all three of those former things. And then dreams are what you see when you're asleep. Perfect Blue, the debut film by the late Japanese animation filmmaker Satoshi Kon, doesn't answer those questions in the same way. For this story, the three things blend together. Naturally, the results turn out something closer to a delirious, wild, crazy thriller. And it's almost as if a story like this has no choice but to thrill us, or at least get under our skin. I'm also reminded watching Perfect Blue of Slavoj Žižek's line, about what happens when our fantasies become realized. Refashioned as Madeleine steps out of the door, it's like fantasy realized. And of course, we have a name, a perfect name for fantasy realized. It's called nightmare. Fantasy realized. What does this mean? Of course, it is always sustained by an extreme violence. Sure, sounds like psych gobbledygook, right? Well, he was talking about this in relation to Hitchcock's Vertigo, when Jimmy Stewart finally gets to see his, quote, recreated Kim Novak in her original gray pantsuit, surrounded by green light. And as he embraces her, he becomes fascinated by the environment around her, the room that they're in. So imagine if that moment was a 75-minute fucked-up anime movie about a pop idol-turned-actress who slowly becomes unhinged by her former pop idol presence following her, while she's being stalked by a creepy security guard, while also being on a television show where she plays a character whose sanity is in question. A reality check is hard to come by in the world of Perfect Blue. The opening images of the movie give us an indication of what we are about to see, and it's done in a clever way. There's a Power Rangers type of fiction being created in progress, and then it's revealed that it's not actually happening, but what is being presented on a stage in front of a live audience. This is the only time that the show is shown to us, but it's enough to get the point across, which became clear to me upon the repeated viewings of the film. People will accept the fictions that are created for them, and it all comes down to the context. We know that these Power Ranger, whatever they are, are not real, and we're fine with it. And we as human beings know, logically speaking, there's no earthly way these guys will suddenly come after us or haunt us in our dreams, or especially in our waking state. They're in the frame of the presentation that's set up for us, and this extends to the pop idol act of Cham, which features the main character of the story, Mima Kirigo. Mima Kirigo 
as we learn relatively quickly in this film, it only has so much time, by the way, it's an 81-minute movie with credits, that she has been the pop group Cham for two and a half years. But of course, a pop group when you're a teenager seems like a lifetime, and she is now striking it out on her own as an actress. Or, as one of her fellow Cham mates puts it to the gathered audience at the start, she has graduated from Cham. There may be a key question to ask about this decision for American audiences. Why not simply be an actress and a pop idol? How many people can you think of who have done both? Madonna, Diana Ross, Beyonce, and to a more specific example, as Cham is closer to being like a well-oiled, choreographed machine is like Disney, Selena Gomez? I suspect things may be different in Japan, or perhaps Mima and her management, who become split on this decision somewhat, wants her to go more the Brie Larson route. Yes, she was once a would-be Avril Lavigne type of pop singer before she went on to, you know, being amazing in everything she's in, such as Room and so on, but I digress. How can Mima be taken seriously by the public if she's in her schoolgirl uniform doing dopey songs about love and harmony on stage? The irony, of course, is that the audience, as is shown in the film, is represented by adult men, would prefer her as a pop idol. Or to put it another way, when Mima starts to get her acting gig on the sort of psychological crime profiling television series that is meant to showcase her as a professional, serious actress, a few male admirers who we see talk in a group and are often watched by the stalker Mr. Mamania, which sounds a little like Mima or the other name called her Memorin. They don't take her seriously. She's still that girl from the pop group. Oh, one of the things I wondered on the third, fourth, and fifth viewings, more than the first two, was the audience for the Cham group, and then later on, when the other two members of the trio are made into their own pop group, is why the audience is all, from what we can see, men. And I mean adult men, the kind that sometimes like to get into fights in the audience and throw beer cans on stage. Wouldn't a group like Cham be more appealing to young girls or teenage girls? On the other hand, there's also a reason why Britney Spears, in her first big explosion of popularity in 1999, was appealing to everyone. And for men it was, well, if you were around then, you'd know why. Perfect Blue's real artistry comes from the animation, of course, and from Satoshi Kon's overall vision. But that's not only limited to character designs or how he pushes the voice actors to get to a certain point. The voice actress for Mima in the Japanese version is so convincing that it goes beyond what one might usually expect of a voice actress. But from the editing, how a movie moves matters, how it transitions from one spot to the next, how you are taking along from one beat to another, whether it's five seconds long or half a second, and Khan's preference is to make sure that we are as disoriented as the main character. There are many curious choices in the film, and yet what's crucial is that we aren't completely in Mima's point of view for the whole runtime. Sometimes we'll see what the woman Rumi, and who was a pop bile herself, this is mentioned in passing, but pay attention when it comes up, and man Tadakoro, Mima's managers, are discussing behind closed doors, or other times comes right in front of her. 
And then it will sometimes cut to what is going on with Mr. Romania stalking Mima while making sure that Mima's blog is up to date with facts and information that are not as they are happening. <laughs> or even more disturbing with details that shouldn't be listed there as being so accurate as, hey, what's going on here? The crux of what drives most of the dream mind fuck narrative ahead comes after Mima, on the TV show she's on, agrees to act in a rape scene. Why would she do this? Well, she explains in her naive way, despite Rumi's objections, that this will help her be taken more seriously. She needs to move ahead from her perception of ju being just a dumb pop idol and show her range. The first break from reality for Mima happens, not after the rape, though this certainly escalates things, but when she agrees to do the scene. On a subway on her way home, she sees her former pop idol Mima in the window, and it tells her not to do it. An omen? Or her conscience? Or is it a ghost? An illusion? What is this? The rape scene, by the way, is depicted in such a way that is extremely disturbing. And it's a different kind of disturbing than what I saw in Solanza's Happiness. In that film, you never see the rape. But all the lead-up to it makes for a queasy and yet sickly, darkly comic depiction of sexual depravity. Here Satoshi Khan shows the rape happening, which comes with Mima in a stripper outfit surrounded by men in a club. It's effective because, or almost in spite of us knowing, that this is not a real rape, or even a real strip club. This should be just as fake as the Power Rangers on stage, right? Not how Khan animates and edits it. Logically, we should know that the cameras being there, and even an apologetic actor on top of Mima. I'm so sorry, he says. No, it's fine, Mima replies before it's time to get to the simulated in-out-in-out, in out, and Tadakoro and Rumi watching in the control room as it's shot in real time. But there's no real separation between what's happening in this rape, how Khan cuts between the male gawkers and the rapist and Mima, who is in full historic, hysteric panic and crying and yelling no over and over. It doesn't make it any less humiliating or embarrassing or in its way traumatizing than if a real rape was happening. There, there's an element that makes it worse because of what images it sends out into the world. The male audience members who watch this, and Mr. Romania too, whether he's watching it or angry about it, have that in their minds. And it's not the same sort of fantasy distance as with some goofy Power Rangers show. This is what can happen and does happen in reality. From here, Mima's split between what is real and what is not increases, right from when she gets home and sees dead fish in her tank, and when the illusion of the pop idol comes to her. Why is this here? I think the real power, the artistry, and the command of the language of cinema itself comes with not fully knowing even after five viewings. I can logically dissect after a certain time watching it. Not after the first, but probably, I think, after the second. Yeah, I think so that that some scenes are dreams and because of the show that Mima is acting in where she's playing a character who becomes split off from reality with expert psychologists, uh, detectives in suits explaining things like, you know, in a movie. For the life of me, I can't explain why she has this little Mima following her around and appearing to her and that she ends up chasing down or seeing pass her by in a car or in a mirror. Logic doesn't work in this case. And again, much of this comes down to editing. How quick and sharp Khan throws us from one scene to the next and uses the media of television to make us feel as distorted as Mima. Her real self, quote-unquote, uh, knows she doesn't want to be a pop idol anymore. 
What about her audience? Have they let go yet? Not really for a moment. And the danger of the story comes in people, whether it's Mr. Mamania or a certain someone else committing acts of murder on the people who put her into a rape or in a subjectively shot photo shoot due to her. And yes, I'll spoil it. It's revealed at the end as Rumi, who has been committing these murders, also left her own fucked up devices as an ex-pop idol who has gone crazy and with multiple personalities. I should note that the ending packed us a wallop. Not for the, ha, I was... I wasn't expecting that twist part, but because it connects thematically so strongly and emotionally with the rest of the story. What if you never got that chance to fulfill your dreams and project onto someone else? It may not be entirely the most original reveal of a mystery, that it's the manager, but hey, if you weren't expecting it and it shocks your system and continues to creep you out, job well done, right? Perfect Blue wasn't made for a terrible lot of money. And it can be seen in a handful of shots where the animation for some of the minor characters doesn't have a lot of work. But what Khan focuses on as a filmmaker is creating a fragmented sense of reality and fantasy to where you can't know which is which. And onto this, the element of the newfangled thing in 1997 called the World Wide Web. Oh goodness, how does anyone expect to use this? What do we look like, Al Gore? And how the fake blog creates this, quote, other reality that Mima is living day to day. And you can feel completely, joyously lost in how it moves between space and time. After five viewings, there are parts of the film that aren't surprising, and those are certain story reveals and character developments. What remains surprising, and I'm sure would be so if I were to watch it a sixth, seventh, tenth time, is this wonder over how seamlessly the transitions occur. How, like in a dream or a nightmare or a state of fictional distortion, that trying to make sense of things only makes things more confusing. Giving in to the fantasy can be exciting, for a moment, until it becomes crushing and devastating, and you end up in a too-tight schoolgirl outfit wanting to preserve how things once were. Some odds and ends. Number one. The film's American rights are currently owned by director Darren Aronofsky. He did this so that he could specifically copy two shots of Mima freaking out in the bathtub, curled over and screaming bastards into the water, following more lies on her not-written-by-her-blog, for Requiem for a Dream, from 2000. If you can spot them, you can see why uh, they were done. And later Aronofsky would use elements of this story in Black Swan, by the way. Number two. There's a darkly funny reference to the film The Accused, when Mima's manager brings up the sort of artistic respectability that comes with playing in a rape scene, quote, like Jody, what's her name? But there's another subtler Jodie Foster reference to Silence of the Lambs in the movie, during the first time that the characters in the psych criminal mystery show discuss a killer who skins his victims for sexual satisfaction. Something about Jodie Foster in this movie, dot dot dot. Number three. I felt a logic versus emotional split about something with this movie in my later viewings, and I think it comes down to uh, via the Mr. Romania character. How often in movies with a psycho stalker is the psycho stalker an ugly freak of nature? This character is drawn to have eyes that are far apart, like a fish. Hmm, connection to Mima's fish, I now wonder. But is this a cheap shot? Is it easier to get us to feel creeped out by an ugly man than if he was handsome or charming? A given, I know. And yet emotionally it fits the narrative. 
outside of Mima, many of the characters are designed to be ugly, or at best, more realistically drawn than what you may be used to seeing if you are all just seeing Studio Ghibli films. It's gnarly and nasty, and yet it also fits with how Rumi is drawn too. Another character with eyes far apart, and a direct stylistic choice that adds to the creepiness. And four, there are certain moments when Khan's filmmaking goes past what is expected, or what is usual in Japanese animation in general. I mean this in the sense of what I've seen in both more fantasy-driven stories and more realistic ones, and Ghibli films, to bring them up again, run the gamut from one end to the other. What's fascinating is that Perfect Blue, which starred as a book, was meant to be a live-action series adaptation, but following an earthquake in 1995, was tasked to Khan, who hadn't directed before, as an animation project instead. But he treats it as straightforwardly as he can, which also means employing a lot of camera work. Yes, let's call it camera work. It moves in such a way that a director of photography credit is appropriate, that keeps the characters grounded in such a reality that then the nightmares and fantasy and dreamscapes of the surreal narrative can spring forth, if that makes sense. In other words, Perfect Blue is a sensational film that does what many thrillers, Hitchcock most of all, prop themselves up to be. It won't let you go until the final frame. So that was Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue. Um, if you want to check it out, it's available on DVD. Um, unfortunately, it's not on Blu-ray yet. Uh, and the version that's on DVD isn't uh, proper anamorphic, but that's technical stuff. Uh, you can still check it out. And if you have any points about the movie you want to share uh, or any things uh, you want to agree or disagree, please send an email to us at wagesofcinema at gmail.com. And you can also send us a message on Facebook or Twitter at the Wages of Cinema Podcast. <laughs>